Open your Bibles to James chapter 5, please. That will be our text today. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, as we are approaching the end of our journey through James. We have a few verses left. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. This text today in James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6 really flows from our text last week, James chapter 4 verses 13 through 17. That's what we will talk about today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Christ. That gospel is the power of God to salvation. There is nothing more powerful to save men than your gospel. Father, fill us with your spirit that we would open our mouths and the gospel would come forth. Fill us with your spirit as we walk through this world and the gospel would not just come out of our mouths but would come out of our fingertips, would guide our feet, would guide our thoughts, would guide our actions, that the gospel would be heard and seen, that we would be your epistles to be read by all men, that you would be glorified in your church. Father, we ask this for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So this really is, um, even though we have the chapter break, this really goes with those last verses of chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. In James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17, we have what we call the parable of the merchants uh, that James introduces here. And these verses are connected in their context. So in this text, we see James issuing a grim warning to those rich who were persecuting Christ and his church. That warning is also meant to be reassurance for those believers who were suffering under that persecution, going through those fiery trials. And it was reassurance that the Lord of hosts has heard their cries. And I want you to be reassured today that the Lord of hosts 
hears your cries. James is writing to Jewish believers while warning those rich and powerful persecuting Jews. So these were Jewish believers primarily that James is writing to. Remember when he begins this, his letter, he writes to, to his brethren who have been dispersed. So this is, these are the Jews that were dispersed by persecution that arose in Jerusalem. We see this in Acts chapter 8. When they stoned Stephen, persecution began and the church was dispersed. James is probably the earliest, maybe 1 Thessalonians, but 1 Thessalonians and James were both written very early. It's believed James was probably written in the early 40s. So we're talking, this letter was written shortly after uh, this persecution arose uh, in Jerusalem. And those Jewish believers, the church was almost exclusively Jewish in the very beginning. And those Jewish believers were dispersed throughout the empire, throughout the known world. Anywhere there were Jews living, anywhere there was a synagogue, those Jewish believers would have left Jerusalem, fled Jerusalem, fled the persecution. And so these Jews of the diaspora, of this dispersion, James is writing to them, and they are being persecuted by other Jews, by that James refers to as, you rich. And so these Jews are persecuting the church. These verses stand as a warning of the Lord's coming judgment upon those Jews who had rejected Christ and who are rejecting the message of the gospel and persecuting the church while at the same time standing as reassurance to those believers living under that persecution. So James chapter 5, verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. So there is an invitation here to weep and howl. Kind of a strange invitation, isn't it? Imagine receiving such an invitation in the mail. Oh, I just got an invitation to weep and howl. I wonder what I should do with that. Well, when you get an invitation from God to weep and howl, you should weep and howl. That's what you should do. James issues a warning to those Jews he refers to as you rich. In this warning, he invites them to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon them. This same language is found in the prophets of the Old Testament as they proclaimed Judgment upon the heathen nations who had come against God and his people. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6, Isaiah prophesies to Babylon and he says, Well, for the judgment God was bringing upon her. So he prophesies and he says to Babylon, Well, for the judgment that God is bringing upon you. We see the same with other nations who were the enemies of God and his people. And these wicked nations were told to wail, to cry aloud because of the coming judgment. What is significant is that now the Jewish nation finds herself being told by God to weep and howl for the miserable judgment that is coming. 
by her rejection of Christ and now the rejection of his church, she has become like the heathen enemies of God and his people. The believers reading James' letter, these Jews who are reading this letter, would immediately understand this significance. They would get the context of what James is saying here. We miss it very often because we live in our Western world with a Western mentality and a Western frame of mind. So by her rejection of Christ, she's become like the heathen nations that God invited to wail and to howl because of coming judgment. The believers reading James' letter would immediately understand this significance, and it would reassure them in their position as God's people. The rich James' warning represented the leadership of the nation who was now opposing God and his people. In her rejection of Christ and in her persecution of God's people, Israel now takes a position with the heathen nations. This signifies that the church, now made up of both faithful Jews and Gentiles, is indeed the true Israel of God by faith in Jesus Christ. This Jewish state, on the other hand, has now become the apostate enemy to the gospel of Christ. As we see throughout the gospels and throughout the New Testament writings, there is a warning for the church to heed that we do not become like the unbelieving nations and peoples as we go about the work of the kingdom. So we don't do the work of the kingdom in the same manner that the nations work. The rich and their judgment is defined here by James. So let's go back to two references that he has already given us in his letter. The first reference is in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It describes how these rich will pass away. Let me read these three verses to you. James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Who are these rich? Well, they are those awaiting God's promised judgment who will fade away in their pursuits, James writes. They are those who will fade away and perish as the flower of the field under the burning heat of the sun. In their case, it will be the burning heat of the Son of God who, will have who they have rejected and are now persecuting by persecuting his church. The next verses referencing the rich are in James chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. These verses describe the actions that bring God's judgment upon those rich and the whole nation. James chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Who are these rich? In these verses, James specifically identifies the rich as those who dishonor and oppress 
and dragged the believers into court, not for civil matters, but to facilitate persecution of the church. This is what this is just what Paul was doing when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Remember in the book of Acts when Paul leaves Jerusalem on his way to Damascus with papers in hand to arrest the believers. He's going to drag them from their houses and drag them to jail, take them to the courts to be tried, and ultimately many of them were put to death. These are the rich that James is warning in his letter. These are the rich that blaspheme that noble name by which you are called. What is that noble name? It is the noble name of Christ by which those who follow him are called. It's why we are called Christians. That is the noble name that they are blaspheming. That is the noble name they are persecuting. This is the name they blaspheme. These are the persecutors and the rejectors of Christ and his church. We see then James is not talking about a different group of rich in chapter 5 than the rich he describes in chapters 1 and 2. These are not simply rich, believing Jews who are taking unfair advantage of the poor through their wealth. That's not the point James is making here. Don't misunderstand what he's saying. It is something much more. These rich are unbelieving Jews representing the nation and the entire Judaic system who blaspheme the name of Christ and oppose his church. These are rich and powerful Jews who are ordering that these Jews who are following Jesus be sought out in all the synagogues. They are specifically seeking out those Jews who bear the noble name of Christ. These are the same Jews that Jesus himself warned of coming judgment and then warned his disciples to be careful of. Beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus told his disciples. Any efforts by the church to appease or conform to the tactics of these persecutors would be sinful, and James warns the church against this. And he writes, come now, you rich. And he says, miseries are coming. Notice in verse 1 that James speaks of the coming miseries of these rich. James and these dispersed Jewish believers are in the midst of persecution orchestrated by these rich and powerful leaders. At that time, they were literally trying to stamp out the church and the name of Christ. Christianity threatened their established power structure and their religious system. Christ was now the substance of all those shadows. Remember Paul's letter to the Colossians. He said, let no man judge you in food or drink or in Sabbaths or anything like that, for these are simply the substance or the shadow, but Christ is the substance. And so with the coming of the gospel, the shadows vanished and the substance came. With the coming of Christ, the shadows were gone and now the substance is before us. We don't need to look to shadows any longer. And so these Jewish leaders were trying to stamp out the name of Christ for that reason because Christianity threatened their power structure 
and it threatened their religious system. The whole world was now passing away into the new creation that has been ushered in by Christ. James makes a bold prediction of their coming judgment. He does this because he knows that Jesus has already prophesied and has already promised this coming judgment. Listen to the words of Jesus concerning these same leaders who would crucify him and then go on to persecute his church. Matthew chapter 23, verses 29 through 26. The whole chapter is worth reading, but I'm not going to take the time to read the whole chapter to you. I'm just going to read these few verses here. Matthew 23, 29 through 36. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Those are the words of Christ speaking directly to these same Jewish leaders who are now persecuting his church. These are exactly the ones James is warning of impending judgment. Jesus assured those listening that all these things would come upon their generation. We're not waiting for some future generation yet to be. That generation has already come and gone. The judgment has already come and gone. That was the judgment he promised would come upon Jerusalem, the temple, and the people for their rejection of him as their Messiah. You go right into Matthew chapter 24, and Jesus is speaking of this. It's also found in Luke 19 and Luke 21. James assures his readers that the misery of that promised judgment is coming. Trying to appease these persecutors, or worse, resorting to their style of violence to oppose them was not the course set by Jesus. Making deals with the devil or trying to fight a spiritual battle by carnal means is not faith, it is foolishness. And the same is true for us today. We cannot fight our spiritual battles by using carnal means. Why? Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. Those are the words of the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. If anyone should know this, it would be Paul who once persecuted the church. We must not resort to the carnal ways of the world. We must not become like those who oppose the gospel in our effort to advance the gospel. 
We do not advance the kingdom of heaven by adopting the tactics of the kingdom of this world. We do not fight a spiritual battle with weapons of the flesh. We are called to a different standard. We are called to the standard of Christ, His Spirit, and His Word. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God. James was pointing out that those Jewish oppressors had become like their own oppressors whom they despised. The Jews hated the Romans and the Romans' oppression, but they had become just like them in their oppression and their persecution of the church. Instead of seeking to be the nation of priests and kings that would be, bring blessing to the families of the earth as God promised Abraham, they instead sought worldly power to achieve their purposes. James is warning his readers against making the same sinful mistake and falling under the same judgment as those, as those who were now persecuting them for the sake of Christ. We live in a day and a time where this is a temptation for the church. And we need to be careful that either through our words or through our actions, we're not resorting to the methods of the world in order to try to advance the gospel. In this warning, James is pointing to the judgment Jesus promised would come. As Jeff Myers puts it in his commentary on James, and I quote, Israel was called as a nation so that through them all the families of the earth shall be blessed, Genesis 12, 3. But in these last days, Israel has loved power and prominence over service and suffering, close quote. As Myers points out concerning the nation of Israel, the church must not find herself more in love with power than service and more seeking prominence instead of embracing suffering. We are called to serve just as our Savior did, even with our lives. We must remember that to suffer with Him is to reign with Him. Romans 8, 17 and 2 Timothy 2, 12. In the kingdom, there is no greatness apart from service and no reigning apart from suffering. This is not a forfeiture of our victory, but it is the sign of it. Our victory is not dependent upon us, but has already been secured for us by Christ. We are to walk in that victory by faith, not by sight. Our life doesn't always look victorious. Our life doesn't always feel victorious. The circumstances taking place around us don't always speak of victory. Sometimes it looks very dire. It looks like we're losing instead of winning. But we don't walk by sight. We are people who walk by faith. We don't judge things based on what we can see with our eyes. We judge things based on what God has revealed to us in His Word. We don't need to see all things under him. All we need to do is see Jesus and know that all things have already been placed under him. Amen. This is a challenge for the church today. But guess what? It was a challenge for the church in James' day. It was a challenge then. It is a challenge now. So our victory is not dependent upon us. Christ has already secured it for us. 
And we walk in that victory by faith, not by sight. And it is through serving and suffering that we rule and reign with Christ. This is the nature of God's kingdom that is contrary to the kingdoms of this world. By pronouncing judgment upon an apostate Jewish state which had clearly rejected her Messiah and now was clearly rejecting his church and his gospel, the church now is presented as the true Israel of God, not made up, now made up of faithful Jews and Gentiles. These are the children of promise by faith. This is what Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians. You are now Abraham's seed if you are in Christ. And you are now heirs according to the promise. That applied to Jews as well as Gentiles who are now by grace trusting in Christ as their Savior, as their Messiah. You understand that the Jewish leaders, the Jewish establishment of James's day and of Jesus' day did not like that reality. When Jesus told the parable of those who would come from the east and west and sit with Abraham and that would be taken away and given to them, it says that the Jews immediately sought to kill Jesus because they understood that he spoke of them. And they understood what Jesus was saying. This is not replacement theology. This is the gospel of Christ. This is the gospel of the kingdom. In Christ, there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, but one new man from the, tr- from the two. Now in our identity in Christ, now both Jew and Gentile have access by one spirit to the Father. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. Now in Christ, there is no longer a distinction or partiality. James talks about this partiality in this letter. And now there is no partiality, but Christ is all and in all, Colossians 3.11. So James then goes on in verses 2 and 3, and he says, You and your riches are corrupted. James is not railing against being rich. James is railing against these self-righteous rich who are using their power and their position to garner favor, to dishonor the poor, to oppress and drag the believers into court, and to blaspheme and discredit the name of Christ and his church. The description James gives here paints a far different picture than the one these religious leaders held of themselves. Listen to what Jesus had to say about these religious leaders that James is writing about here in his letter. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. James is writing about that greater condemnation that these leaders will receive. James said, your priestly garments are moth-eaten. The reference of devouring widows' houses that Jesus makes is an indictment concerning the riches that they would secure 
by unjust means and immoral means. In short, they believed that they deserved the praise and all the accolades they so loved to receive. James sets the record straight, describing what their true condition is. And it is not good, and it does not bode well for these leaders. The riches they coveted would be their downfall, for they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. Because they were sons of Abraham, they believed all these rights and privileges were entitled to them. Jesus, and now James, is reminding them what they actually are entitled to or what they actually deserve. Lest we become haughty and point our finger at them, we deserve no less than what they received. We deserve no less miserable judgment than they, but by God's grace and by His grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ, God will not give to us, to you or to me, what we actually deserve. In fact, he gives to us what we actually do not deserve. He gives to us mercy. The riches of the temple and the nation, the priesthood and its leaders with their flowing robes had become a source of great pride. Israel no longer considered herself here for the sake of the world. They now saw the world and all that's in it as being here for them. This was not the heart of a servant, but the hard heart of a self-appointed master. And that's how these rich Jewish leaders were acting as they persecuted Christ and his church. Here again the words penned by James. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. That is a stinging indictment. As the church, we must not fall into the same sin. We must keep looking to Jesus, who humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, even death upon the cross. We are called to do no less than to give ourselves. One thing that made these leaders fear and hate Christ and the church is that they understood the implications of the gospel and what it meant for the world they had created for themselves. We're not called to build empires for ourselves. We're called to advance the kingdom of God as his servants. That's not the attitude of these leaders that were persecuting the church as James is writing his letter. They understood the implications of the gospel and what it meant for the world and the empire that they had created for themselves. As the church, we too must understand the implications of the gospel and what it means for the world God has created for us and commands us to fill with the knowledge of His glory. We are commanded to go forth, to be fruitful and to multiply in every way that applies. Encourage your families to have children. Encourage your families to have large families, to fill this earth with the image of God. Encourage 
one another to go forth and take the gospel and proclaim the gospel so that men might be saved, so that the, the knowledge of the glory of God would fill this earth even as the waters cover the sea. This is what we have been commanded to do by our Lord. This is the commission He has given to us. As the church, we too must understand the implications of the gospel. God has put us in this world to be salt and light and to fill it with His glory and with His image. So we labor not in vain because God sees and God hears. In the last three verses of this text today, from James chapter 5, we see that James is not simply pointing out economic injustice. Listen to verses 4, 5, and 6. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. If you listen to that language and you are familiar with the book of Revelation, it sounds very familiar to what uh, is being uh, shown there to John, what's written in that revelation of Jesus Christ when it talks about the merchants of the world weeping and crying because of the destruction that had come. James says here, he says, you, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. So James is not simply pointing out economic injustice here for the working class. That is not his point at all. That's not what James is describing. The spiritual theme of these verses is the same as what we have already talked about in his parable of the merchants. This that James is writing here as he, as he speaks of those rich, you rich, and he proclaims their judgment. We defined who James calls the rich. We must identify and define the laborers and the reapers he mentions in these verses. These laborers and these reapers who worked in the fields are crying out because of wages withheld and for fraud perpetrated against them. These are the same labors that we see reflected in the words of Christ from John chapter 4. His words will help us understand what James is writing here. John 4, 35 and 36. Jesus said, do you, do you not say, there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. All throughout the parables and throughout the New Testament, this metaphor of agriculture is used, not because it makes great um, you know, word pictures for people to understand. This is the, word, the world God has created. God is communicating something much more than here than... We should be fair with our wages. We shouldn't take advantage of people that we have advantage over. 
No, he's talking about a spiritual principle here. He's talking not about money. He's talking about souls. He's talking about something much more valuable here. We see the same imagery in the parables of Jesus as a common theme addressing the nation of Israel and the kingdom of God. The apostles and the disciples following Jesus are the laborers. They are the reapers working in God's field. You and I are those laborers and those reapers today. God had given great gifts, both spiritual and natural, to the nation of Israel. He placed men in positions to oversee those gifts. And the most precious of those gifts were the souls of men. And he has done the same with the church. It's why pastors are called shepherds. It's why the church is called a flock. And there is a responsibility that a pastor or a shepherd has for his flock. And God says he will be judged more sternly than others because of that responsibility. Well, the same was true for Israel. She had shepherds that God had placed over her. And those shepherds did not do a very good job of taking care of their flock. In fact, they did more of fattening themselves than they did of taking care of their flock. If you come out to the psalm sing and the prayer tonight, you'll hear us quote these very scriptures as we lift our prayer up to God. The apostles and the disciples were those labors. They were those reapers. You are that today. By blaspheming the name of Christ and rampaging against the church in continued rejection of Jesus, these rich stewards withheld the wages of the labors and defrauded the reapers. Instead of doing what was just and righteous, they lived unrighteously on the earth in pleasure and luxury. They fattened their own hearts as in a day of slaughter, and they have condemned... And they have murdered the just he does not resist. Of course, the just one they condemned and murdered that did not resist them was Jesus. He is the epitome of the just one. He went to the slaughter and did not utter a word. But it's not just Jesus. It is the followers of Christ who are the laborers and the reapers who are working in the Lord's field to bring in his harvest that are now being persecuted by these leaders. Even the author of this letter, James, was ultimately killed by these Jewish leaders. These rich with their wealth and flowing robes and positions of power and great influence had fattened their hearts for the day of slaughter and God's judgment was not far off, so says James. And so for those under that persecution, James is reassuring them that God hears the cry of his people. James assures his readers that the cries of the laborers and the reapers have reached the ear of the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. It is the Lord of hosts that will come and judge these wicked. <clears throat> there is no doubt that if men could have seen into the spiritual realm, there would have been multitudes of the heavenly host under the command of the Lord of hosts in his judgment of that wicked generation. That judgment culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD by the hands of Roman armies. That was the judgment Jesus prophesied and promised would come. His prophetic descriptions came true to the letter. 
His judgments are true and just. As James is writing this letter, that judgment is yet future. But it was sure. And as we look back 2,000 years, we see that God kept his word. Jesus is not a false prophet. His word came to pass and not one letter of it fell to the ground unfulfilled. The city and the temple was destroyed, but God had already raised up the third and final temple when the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Jerusalem was then destroyed by the Romans and the Jews themselves, but God is now building a new Jerusalem. And one day it will descend from heaven adorned like a bride for her bridegroom. This is the church that will prevail against the gates of hell. This is the church that you and I, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, are a part of. You are the church, and you are members of the church if you are members of Christ's body. That's why you should be a member of a local church. Because you are the church. And God didn't birth the church to be some disconnected, single, isolated thing out there. But the church is called a family. The church is called a body. The church is called a flock. The church is called an army. The church is called all things that speak of a corporate presence and a corporate connection and a corporate function. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. Speaking of members of the church, if you are a baptized member of Christ's church, whether you are young or whether you are old, you are welcome to this table. Whether your membership is here at Christ's Fellowship Church, or somewhere else, if you count yourself a member of his body, and you count yourself as his covenant people, then Christian, welcome to the Lord's table, and welcome to Jesus. We will all be served, and then we will all eat and drink together. Please stand for your charge. We have communed with God, now God commissions us to go forth in his name. Israel and her leaders forgot that she existed for the sake of the world. Instead, they lived as though the world existed for their sake. The church in many ways has fallen into the same sinful and self-serving attitude. We are called the light of the world. We are called to be salt and light for the world. We must guard against that sin of self-serving and self-importance, both corporately and personally. And remember that God calls us instead to a life of self-sacrifice and service to God and to one another. The world system that hated Christ and the church in the days that James wrote his letter still hates Christ and still hates the church today. That is because the gospel of Christ is still tearing down the kingdoms of men and bringing to nothing those things that man lifts up and exalts against the knowledge of God. God is doing that in our, in our world and we must embrace that same work in our own hearts and in our own lives. 
Christ must, Christ came to die so that we too may die, being crucified with him so that we may be raised with him to live and move and have our very being in him. Those leaders in James' day wanted to be the central subjects of their own stories. Many still seek that today. The gospel puts all things in their proper place, including our place in his story. This is all his story. It is by his grace alone that we even have a place in it. But you do. And I know you do because you're here today. And because you're here today, you have a place in his story. You have a purpose. God has a plan. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. You don't have to know what it is. You just have to know that he is your Lord, that he is the author of the story, that this is his story, not yours. He's the main character, not you. And commit yourself to walking out your faith and your part of his story for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Have a great day.